And our gospel reading today is taken from Mark chapter 4, reading verses 26 to 34. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray again together. God, our Father, we thank you again for the, the matchless discovery of your holy word. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us and chosen us and that you've given us ears to hear the wisdom of the ages. And we thank you that a better than Solomon is here. And we pray that you would help us today to see the matchless worth of the kingdom of Jesus that we might give ourselves to it. Oh God, send grace upon grace upon us this day, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue today to look at the parables of the kingdom. Jesus spent a lot of time and a lot of energy telling his disciples about what the kingdom was like. And it's important that we hear him at all points, and we learn to give ourselves to this kingdom of the Lord. And today in our parable, Jesus, Jesus uh, directs our attention to the kingdom as it has to do with size, and especially the kingdom as it has to do with small things. And by nature, we don't like small things. By nature, at least we, I should say by nature, we, we tend to think of worth or quality in, in, in terms of largeness and big things. I remember when Heather and I were celebrating one of our anniversaries uh, somewhere in the lake country of Ontario and we, we went uh, as fairly young folk, what we, what we thought was a fairly uh, expensive restaurant, Haute Cuisine, and I ordered something fancy and I was very, very hungry. And what came to my, my plate, <laughs> it looked terribly beautiful. <laughs> but it was really, really small. And you could say to my hungry stomach all that you wanted that less is more, and I just could not hear you. What I wanted was something big. And you know, we're trained to think in that way. And mustard seeds, as we, we learned this morning with the children, are very, very small. Jesus knew that mustard seeds don't produce trees. They produce very, very large plants in the garden. And so the, the purpose of this parable hinges on the proverbial smallness of the seed. These seeds are very small. In fact, they're so small that if I were to cast one of these out today, here you go, Josh, there's cash them up. 
It's very, very hard to find. You'd be hard-pressed to find that seed this morning. And Jesus says, my kingdom can be very small. It can even be unnoticeable. This is true in its beginnings, and it's also true as it continues to grow. In fact, it's always been the case that God seems to choose the weak and the despised things in the world to shame those things that are strong. He chooses the low things and the despised things in the world to bring to nothing the things that are. Who is Abraham? This timid and fearful and deceitful man? This nobody nomad? Who is Abraham that he should become the father of many nations? What was Israel? What was Israel in view of all these mighty empires of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians? What was Israel that it should become the harbinger of all this blessing in the world? Who was David? The run to the litter. The fellow that his dad didn't even want to mention. That David should become the king of a mighty nation. God has always been delighted to manifest his truth and his strength and his glory through small things. Gideon, he says, your army, it's too big. Gideon, your army's too big, get rid of more men. When I save you and save you I will, I don't want the nations to say it was on account of your strength that the Lord saved you. But it's very tempting to judge kingdom work and church work and kingdom successfulness both in our own lives and in the lives of those around us in terms of size and visible success. All these mega churches and mega programs and you know, mega glossy brochures, all these things, it seems as if it's the telltale sign of God's activity in this world. Samuel had the same problem, didn't he? Remember Samuel the prophet? He goes to find the Lord's anointed, and he goes and he sees all of David's brothers, and he sees David's eldest brother alive, and he says, oh, surely this man is the anointed of the Lord. And God has to come to Samuel and correct him. He says, Samuel, that's the way that men think. Men look at the outward prospect, but God looks at the heart. In Paul's day, there are many successful people there were mega churches and mega pastors and mega preachers. They all had this outward success about them. Paul, in fact, calls them super apostles, if you remember. All these super apostles about. And Paul admits that even some of them were preaching the gospel. And he rejoiced that the gospel was being preached through these larger-than-life personalities. But still, Paul the apostle wasn't impressed by what he saw on the outside. In fact, in a very candid and forthright moment, Paul looks at all these super apostles, all these mega churches and mega preachers, and he says this, he says, they all seek their own. They all seek their own, not the things of Jesus. They have the sound of the gospel, but inwardly they are far from it. They are not fixed on the person of Jesus. But, says Paul, I have one guy. But, says Paul, I have one guy, and there's no one like him at all. Whenever I meet him and I pray with him and we speak together, his life is redolent and it wafts the fragrance of the Lord. And who was this guy that Paul was so struck with? Who was this guy that caught Paul's attention? The very same guy that nobody seemed to have much use for at all. This fearful little Timothy. 
weak in body, weak in soul, consumed with various fears. And it seemed that wherever Timothy went to serve, he was despised by those that he was attempting to minister to. This guy, says Paul, this weak, despised, and fearful fellow, he outshines everybody else because Timothy, small as he is, is fixed, absolutely fixed on the eternal vastness of Jesus. When I meet with Timothy, that waft of Christ flows through everything. And he's proven his worth because he radiates the presence of another. And so you see then it isn't size that's the issue. Seeming success isn't the thing. Popularity isn't the thing. Being the talk of the town doesn't matter. What matters to the kingdom is the soul that is fixed on Christ and on his strength and on his vastness and on his glory. And one of the most dangerous things that can happen to us as individuals or that can happen to us as a church is that if we perhaps chance to become outwardly successful and we expand and rise and spread, somehow imperceptibly, Gradually, though it may be, we become more concerned about our reputation as a successful church or as a successful person than with the honor and the glory and the fame of our master. Jeshurun, we read in Deuteronomy 32, grew fat and stout and sleek. And then he forsook the God who made him and he scoffed at the rock of his salvation. And so John Calvin writes, to learn to be rich and to have abundance is a point very hard to be attained to. All the commodities that God gives us in the world ought to be ladders that we climb up to him, but the opposite is often the case. When we grow big, it is very often the case that God becomes small to us. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord sends us circumstances that cut us down. The Lord sends us difficulties that make us painfully aware of our own weakness and our inability. These things that seem to cross us and we don't understand why are indeed the manifest mercies of God. They are the ways that God uses to bring us into the proper perspective of the finite creature before the vastness of its immeasurable maker. Smallness, weakness, helplessness is the way of the kingdom. In scripture, it's the poor who are blessed. It's the hungry who are filled. It is the humble who are filled with, with God's grace. You remember the apostle Paul on this very point. Paul had been suffering with something. We don't know what it is. He described it as a thorn in his flesh. And he came to God with, with earnest, with striving prayers that God would deliver him from the thing that made him acutely aware of his own weakness. Oh God, would you not remove this thing from me? And the Lord has to come to Paul and say, Paul, don't you understand, Paul? Don't you get it, Paul, that it's this very thing? This weakness is the thing that will manifest my saving strength through you. I've given this to you, Paul. 
This is my gift to you. And so the Puritan theologian Paul Bain, writing on the fifth chapter of Ephesians, he says this, he says, all of the, in all of the grounds of the world, it is the valleys that produce the fruit. It's not the peaks. It's not the heights. And in God's economy, just as with the small mustard seed, smallness and lowness, even backwardness and apparent insignificance, these things are the vehicles for the progress of the kingdom of God. Gosh, we have a hard time believing that. We have a hard time believing that, but it's true. The kingdom of God comes to us in smallness and in weakness. But lest this truth should be distorted and abused and used as a, as a justification for resting on our laurels, Jesus also points out this morning that the kingdom is something that grows. Indeed, the kingdom is something that becomes quite large. The mustard seed, he says, is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes an outstretched tree. And therefore, if we must not despise small things, nor discount the kingdom of God where it's seemingly insignificant, neither must we content ourselves without experiencing the expansive character of the kingdom of God. According to Jesus, the church exists to grow. According to Jesus, the church exists to multiply. In fact, it's very hard to read Luke's account of the early church without coming to terms with this very thing, that the church is all about the constant multiplication of believers. Acts 2, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 5, and more than ever, believers were being added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. Acts 11, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 13, as many were appointed to life, believed, and were added to the church. Acts 16, the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so even though the church is often manifesting the strength of God in smallness and seeming insignificance. The kingdom of God, to be the kingdom, it must grow. When I was a child, I had a picture on the wall of my room of two little boys. They were standing on the riverbank, and they had a can of worms getting ready to fish, and one had, had cast that fishing rod behind his back to, to launch out into that pond or lake where they were fishing, and he had caught the back pocket of his friend. And he was tugging. Well, what he was doing, in fact, was, was he was pulling his friend with that hook. And I studied that picture for many years as a young boy, and its message le never left me. I will make you disciples, fishers of men. To follow Jesus is to win men and women to the faith. It's not an option. It's not something that the evangelists do. It's something that disciples do. To be a disciple of Jesus is to win men and women for the kingdom of God. Even the corrupt friar in Chaucer's Summoner's Tale understood this. He said, I am well versed in the words of Peter and Paul. Like them, I fish for men's souls. I render to Christ his due. I spread abroad his message to the world. 
Now, some of us have suffered in various churches, especially in the low evangelical church. Some of us have suffered where missions and evangelism have achieved the, the pinnacle, the chief spot in the church. It is, it is being, it is being uh, uh, given to us that the most important thing for you is to win souls. Everyone can win one, right? Save to serve, as it were. That's crippling theology. It's burdensome and it's not true. We are not saved to be missionaries. Evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. That belongs to worship. But I like what John Piper says here. Mission exists because worship doesn't. The mission of the church exists because in various quarters of the world, in, in our city, in, in our university, in, in our neighborhoods, worship isn't happening. And what we are about here at Christ Church is all about the worship of the Lord. Not primarily because it makes us feel good, but because we are convinced as God's people that worship is due to the Lord. Worship is owed to the Lord, and we go to church Sunday by Sunday, not primarily because it will do us good, which it will, but we go to church because we heard from the mouth of Jesus himself, you shall worship the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord. He is infinitely worthy of our worship and our thanksgiving and our praise. And when we gather together as God's people, his name is lifted up and he is glorified and he is honored and all the invisible principalities and powers of this world, they look and they see and they stand back at this prospect of the people of God gathering together to laud and to magnify the majesty and the infinite honor of the Lord of heaven and earth, and the devil gnaws himself in torment as he watches without anything he can do at the people of God, magnifying the one that he hates. And so the cry of the godly man's heart and the cry of the godly woman's heart is the cry of the psalmist, let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. What I long for is to see the Lord God praised. We want to see as many people as possible honor the Lord. And so in true kingdom fashion, we must seek to expand. We must seek to grow. We must seek to win people to the kingdom so that the Lord might be glorified. And so, my brothers and sisters, we are to be a missionary people. And we must not forget that as we leave the doors today, Jesus' word to all of us, I will make you fishers of men. The kingdom of God is a growing thing. The kingdom of God is an expanding thing. And finally today, the kingdom of God is also an inhabited thing. This seed, Jesus says, small though it begins, and as it grows, this tree becomes something that the birds of the air can make nests in and enjoy its shade. Well, Jesus here is clearly alluding to Daniel chapter 4, where the Babylonian kingdom is depicted as a tree where the various nations can find a home in the king's great dominion. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride failed to erect that tree. 
Jesus, in his kingly humility, triumphs and succeeds. And in his kingdom, the nations will find a safe home forever and ever. And there's something very, very special here about this phraseology. And it comes, I think, it's joined at the hip to Psalm 84, where we read of God's, God's house, that even the sparrow finds a home in your house, O Lord, and a swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. Nesting at the altars of God. Nesting at the altars of God. When I was a young man, I had a very um, wonderful memory of uh, being at the church service and afterwards we would just sit and we'd wait. We didn't want to be anywhere else. We didn't want to be at the theater, we didn't want to be at the restaurant. We were just praying and we were basking together in the company of God's people. And there's something wonderful about that. There's something wonderful about prizing the community of faith where we long for it and we enjoy the church as a place to belong. And we enjoy it the way that we do. And we say with the psalmist that my soul, it faints for the courts of the Lord. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. My soul longs for, it even faints for the, the, the house of the Lord, the courts of the Lord, because we've come to understand that this weekly rhythm of public worship is the godly believer's anticipation of the life that's to come. When we meet each Sunday, week by week, when we can't wait to get together with God's people to earnestly exalt in the goodness and in the mercies of God, we are demonstrating our firm faith in what life is all about. For even as the week of this world expires and Sunday appears, so one day the week of the history of the human race will finally be done away with and we will stand in the eternal Sabbath of God's rest and we will stand with all of God's people. And we'll stand on those green slopes of the New Jerusalem. We'll look around with, with astonished faces saying, can this really be all for us? And we'll join together in a new song. And we will say, let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us give God the glory. The Sunday worship is the anticipation of the eternal Sunday. And somehow as we meet together and as we learn that this togetherness as the gospel people is a home and a nest for us, somehow we encounter the presence of God's majesty in a way that we can encounter in no other place. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars O Lord of hosts, blessed are those who dwell in the house of the Lord, ever singing your praise. And so today, my brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God comes to us in smallness. It comes to us in fragility. 
The kingdom of God is something that expands, that grows, that gathers men and women from all corners of the globe. And the kingdom of God, this visible expression of the church of Jesus Christ, is a place to inhabit. It's a place to make your nest. It's a shade, and it's a rest for your soul. And so let's today pray that God would make us a true kingdom people. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have decided to manifest your strength in our weakness. I thank you that you have called us to be fishers of men and that this great kingdom that we are a part of is ever going forward and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I thank you that in this visible kingdom of God, we now find our rest and our meaning, our purpose, together with the people of God. And we'll know this joy and purpose forevermore. And so, Father, I pray for each of us today that you would make us a true kingdom people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.